As the number of colleges bringing football players back to campus goes up, so does the number of players testing positive for COVID-19. With George Floyd protests continuing across the nation, athletes' voices are getting louder and louder. Virginia Tech basketball is getting bigger, and the Hokies football program picked up a quarterback to replace a big, big decommitment. We'll talk about all that and much more this week on Teal and Barber. Welcome in to episode 13 of Teal and Barber, the Richmond Times-Dispatch and Richmond.com's Virginia Tech, UVA, and ACC sports podcast. I'm Mike Barber, ACC beat writer for the paper, back from my week of furlough, and here with me is my co-host, the 13-time sports writer of the year and the Virginia Sports Hall of Famer, David Teal. We're into our summer schedule of every other week for the podcast, and Conveniently, last week I was furloughed, so uh, that actually worked out. I got to celebrate my son's one-year birthday, celebrate a little Father's Day. But David, of course I missed you, and it's good to be back doing this. Glad to have you back, and uh, good to be back with uh, our audience and uh, talk a little sports. Yeah, Before we talk a little sports, I uh, wanted to check in and see how was your Father's Day. It was great. We just hung out here at the house. Uh with family. Grandma came over and spent some time and we did a little swimming and it was a beautiful day and uh, very quiet, but very, very enjoyable. No, that sounds good. That sounds, sounds like the way to do it, right? Yes. Yeah. We, uh, we ventured out of the house finally here. We've been (laughs) kind of confining our walks with the baby to the neighborhood and we, we took him to the Ravana Trail and, and walked along the river for Father's Day, which was uh, very enjoyable, too, just to have a change of scenery. I know that the dog really appreciated having some different uh, smells to sniff at. So, uh, um, Absolutely, and, and probably a little more space. A lot more space along the river than there is running around in, in our backyard or on the leash in the neighborhood. But uh, glad to hear you're well. Glad to hear you had a good Father's Day. David, let's get rolling today with the question that that really has loomed over everything the the past three months. Will we be able to play college football this fall? It seems like every day there's a new red flag going up. And uh, some of the biggest have been these positive COVID tests from athletes at schools that have brought their players back to campus. Uh, Clemson and, and Texas, very notably, certainly not alone. Notre Dame and Boston College have their testing plans announced. Uh, you know, first off, in terms of that, doesn't every school need to be testing the athletes when they bring them back? Doesn't that just make common sense? You would think at, at some point testing is, is is paramount. Now, Boston College announced its plan just a few moments ago. And what the Eagles are going to do is have the player self-quarantine for a period of two weeks and then test on or about day eight of the quarantine. I guess that's what their medical people are are advising. But certainly, uh, testing is uh, you know non-negotiable. At, at some point, you have to know if if these athletes are are carrying the virus. And you mentioned Clemson and Texas and gosh, LSU, Kansas State has shut down voluntary workouts for two weeks because fourteen athletes have tested positive. But yet I read quotes from LSU's officials as quoted in in Sports Illustrated saying, we expected this. 
So, you know, you, you hear some people are optimistic, some people are pessimistic. I think one thing that we are definitely learning is you're not going to keep college kids quarantined. I mean, that, that's what happened at LSU. They went out and lo and behold, they're out in public, they're in a club. And the virus spreads throughout much much of the team. Yeah, and I think one of the interesting areas of this for me is let let's say we get to a point where we're going to kick off the season, where we're going to play games in in September. What happens? Clemson, you know, they brought their athletes back. They're back for two weeks. Twenty of their players, over twenty of their players, have tested positive, um, and a study there shows that the, the wastewater for the city and the school shows COVID on the rise. So it's very prevalent there. It's spreading. It's affected the football team. What happens if you're in season and a team has an outbreak? What if Clemson is getting ready to play Florida State and all of Clemson's wide receivers are out with COVID? I mean, you've created a a, a situation where you're not really having a fair competition. I mean, this virus, even in a controlled state, could decimate a team, a side of the ball, a position group. Um, it, it just seems like that's an obstacle once we get to the point, if we get to the point that we feel like it's safe enough to try it, that seems like an obstacle that's going to be hard to overcome. I think it'll be impossible to overcome. You're not gonna yeah. have the game you're not gonna have the game. My God, I had a power five athletic director tell me recently that A, he was optimistic about the season starting on time, and B, he would not be surprised if on a Thursday of game week, he had to announce that there would be no game in two days. It's just It, it just seems like it's setting up for a, a level of, of chaos that uh, oh, yeah. it, you got to wonder if it, it's worth it. I understand when I say if it's worth it, there's a lot of different avenues to that. And money-wise, yeah, it's it's probably worth it to squeeze what you can. Um, but in terms of competition, the best of the student-athletes, you know, Dr. Anthony Fauci, who's sort of the nation's leader in, in this whole guiding us through the, the pandemic, he said he doesn't see how NFL football could take place unless it's a bubble setup, like what the NBA is working with, where the teams, the players, the officials are essentially quarantined for the, the duration of the season. That's not an option at the college level, is it? That that doesn't make sense for college football. No, there's too many teams, too many athletes. No, it's, it's, it's absolutely impossible. And they have obligations outside of football. So no, not an option at all. And it's interesting, you mentioned Dr. Fauci's remarks late last week on CNN regarding the NFL. Just today, U.S. Bank Stadium that you and I are very familiar with, having done the Final Four there last April, is shutting down for mm -hmm. the remainder of 2020 with the quote-unquote possible exception of Vikings games. Mm -hmm. So that speaks perhaps to the bubble that the NFL may have to deal with, that the only time those facilities are even open, not to the public, mind you, not to fans, but even to people would be for an NFL game. Yeah, think how many of those teams, I mean, their offices are in those stadiums. And it just, however we get through this, it's not going to be business as usual. And going back to the testing point, you know, you can say what you will about Clemson, the high number of tests, but 
it's positive that they're testing. It's positive that these schools are doing that. And it's very positive, I think, that they're being apparently transparent with their efforts. Here's who we tested. Here's how many. Here's what the numbers are. Virginia Tech brought their athletes back uh, for voluntary workouts. They right now are not testing. The latest from them is they're monitoring for potential symptoms. They're screening, uh, but they're not testing for COVID-19. David, should they be? I think they are. Uh, are, are, are we sure certainly that they are not testing? Um, you know, it, at some point there, there, there has to be tests and is the screening equate to tests? I, I don't know. Uh, Virginia Tech has, has been rather opaque with some of its um, media pronouncements on, on this. And other schools have, have been transparent. Others, not so much. I mean, North Carolina has said they will not release testing results. You know, we've, we've seen a lot of positives announced, but I think most schools, because most schools are back, I think most schools are keeping it close to the vest as to how many positives they've had. The, the last language I got from the school's PR uh, person for the football team said, student athletes wishing to participate will, quote, undergo screening protocols prior to being cleared to participate and will be monitored on a daily basis. Now, when they originally put that statement out, they said that that did not include uh, testing. It included things like taking temperature, monitoring for symptoms, but um, certainly you would hope they are going in that direction. And and to your point that uh, everybody at some point will have testing because one, uh, how else do we really have a handle on how this virus is spreading? And two, how can you possibly keep your team, your players, your coaches, uh, and the other teams and coaches and officials safe if you're not doing testing. It just it just doesn't make sense not to do it. Well, think of it this way, Mike. If, if your team A getting ready to play team B on Saturday, you're going to want a level of assurance that team B has been testing. Otherwise, you're not going to get on the field with that opponent. No way, no how. And, and rightfully, rightfully so. You should, you should not. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And, and I think that brings it to this week's uh, Take It or Leave It. Thanks, Mike. We've asked this question before, but every week there's new evidence to consider. So take it or leave it. We will have college football this fall. Mike. Oh, everyone cover your ears because we all want college football. We all miss it. Uh, it's what we do for, for a living. And, uh, you know, David and I want nothing more than to be uh, in the press box or spread out or however it's done in the fall. I don't see it happening. I, I just, the, the way the numbers are trending, the, the spread of the virus, um, what we're seeing from schools that are trying their best to bring athletes back in a safe fashion, they're trying their best to make it work. It just doesn't seem like it's working. It just doesn't seem like it's going to work. The way this virus spreads, if we're going to be true to the idea that people who are infected need to be quarantined, I think it's going to make it impossible to play the games. I think the number of forfeits alone would make the season sort of a a joke. I, I think there would be games that Teams maybe opt to play instead of forfeit, and they play shorthanded. I, I just, I think that there are other concerns. If we find a way to navigate, and it's a big if, through just the general health risk of can we do this safely, I think there are then going to be so many obstacles logistically to getting two teams 
two coaching staffs, a set of officials onto a field to play a football game. I, I just, the hurdle seems so high for me. I hate to say it. I, I, I don't see it happening this fall. So that's a no from Mike. David, what's your take? Yeah, I've kind of flipped on this, guys, and I, I tend to flip on it weekly. Three weeks ago, I was optimistic. Today, I'm far more pessimistic. And, you know, the fall is, is a big window, but I'm, I'm still going to be with Mike and say, right now, with what we know, I would suggest that there will not be football in the regular seasonal window uh, that we're accustomed to. I was reading, guys, I think it's 113 pages, and I certainly didn't parse the entire thing, but just the document that the NBA released (laughs) on the bubble that it is trying to create down in Orlando, oh my gosh, it'll it'll make your head hurt just the 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 details and all the minutiae that they are planning for and to try to then translate that to the hundreds literally of college football teams across the country just at this point seems too monumental well, we're in agreement, and, and sadly so, I think. <laughs> uh, of course, the nation's other major story right now that inevitably, and, and I think properly, has found its way into the world of sports has been the George Floyd protests and this nationwide movement to, to end systemic racism, to, to combat some of what uh, is kind of ailing society. And what it has helped reveal on a sort of sub-level is the power that college athletes truly have right now, the the voice that they have, and maybe they've always had, but m- maybe they didn't realize or we didn't realize how strong it was. David, they are really at the, the forefront of some of uh, this conversation. They really are, Mike, and I think it's to their credit. And I'll, I'll disagree just a little bit with you. I don't know that they've always had this because they haven't always had social media no. and, and the ability to share and spread their views to so many so quickly. And one of the most overused terms in sports when we're talking about competition or a single game is momentum. Well, what social media does is it creates momentum and almost an echo chamber for ideas and opinions And I think that's what we have seen so frequently in the past couple of months with athletes of of all ages, but most encouragingly to me, young athletes uh, from Marvin Wilson at Florida State and Chubba Hubbard at Oklahoma State and the guys at Clemson and uh, Charles Snowden at, at Virginia and uh, he's, he's not a young man, but Kenny Brooks, the women's basketball coach at, at Virginia Tech, has been eloquent uh, most recently on, on the ACC network the other day talking about uh, race relations and some of the experiences that he has had uh, during his life. So uh, I, I love it. 
an, another example, and it's very much in the forefront of the news today, is Bubba Wallace. You know, there's a 26-year-old young man who, not because of what he's done on, on the NASCAR track, um, but because of his social stance and what has happened to him, has become a national figure. Yeah, and speaking of, of news today, we saw two Liberty football players, including a Manchester grad and, and Trey Clark, announced that they were transferring because what one of them labeled as racial insensitivity at, at Liberty, at you know, ultra-conservative school. And um, I think part of when you think about the power of the voice, and, and you're right in that it's certainly been amplified by social media. Uh, it's certainly a workaround for schools that uh, try to control what athletes speak to the media, what they say to the media. Um, this is in some ways, I think, what schools were trying to to mute. And I don't think that was a good thing. And, and I, I think that is one of the positives of social media. But think about these two kids at Liberty who took it as far as to say, this is the culture here. We're not happy with the culture here. We're leaving. David, I, I honestly believe 20 years ago, those kids would have a hard time finding a place to go uh, at the Division One level, maybe, because of that. If they said, I'm leaving Liberty because of racial insensitivity, I think now, assuming talent matches and roster spots, I don't think that's going to be a, a hindrance at all to them finding a landing spot. No, and I don't know that they would have been heard uh, as, as much as, as they are now. And let's also remember that this comes on the heels of last week's announcement by Asia Todd mm -hmm. from Liberty Women's Basketball Team that she is transferring for very much the same reason. Yeah, it's a, a movement there that is either going to have to be addressed by the leadership of that university and, and Jerry Fowell Jr. and, and that camp, uh, or <laughs> there's going to be a very different uh, look and tenor to the athletic department uh, if they can't find some kind of a resolution. Resolution has been interesting in this. Look at Florida State with, with Marvin Wilson, and uh, that's where their coach said in an interview that he had had one-on-one -on -one conversations with all of his players over the holiday weekend about race relations and the George Floyd protests. And Marvin Wilson, maybe their best player, a, a potential NFL pick, a team captain, came out and, and essentially, I mean, he, he called BS in effect and said sure did. that that wasn't what happened. And then he said, and this goes to the power, he and his teammates were going to boycott the team's off-season workouts. Uh, that was kind of the, the threat there. And, and that's showing the power of, hey, we can say this and, and be respected and, and it be real. Now, things got patched up there after a team meeting. It shows the, the power of the voice of the athletes to push for that that meeting to get some resolution, and it seemed genuine when they came out of it that the players were satisfied. I think it looks less good at Oklahoma State. Now, at Oklahoma State, Chubba Hubbard, the, the star running back, Heisman candidate, to me, to my ears, he ended up apologizing for making it a public issue on Twitter. And, and his coach, Mike Gundy, who kind of triggered the whole thing by, by wearing an OAN t-shirt, which if you're not familiar, it's a, a news network, and I have that in, in air quotes, but um, you know conspiracy theories and, and all the stuff that, that isn't really journalism. And he wore that shirt. That really triggered a lot of the guys on the team. Chubba kind of led the, the cry. They had a team meeting, and I felt like they came out of it with – Chubba Hubbard kind of apologizing for going on Twitter and Mike Gundy kind of saying like, yeah, we'll take a look at things. David, did that sit right with you? Yeah, the, the video was not convincing to say the least. Now, 
uh, ESPN, it just so happens, is doing kind of an inside the program piece on Oklahoma State and had a different clip, a, a non-rehearsed clip from, from Gundy that seemed much more genuine, much more emotional. Now, where Mike Gundy actually stands, who knows? Um, whereas at, at, at Clemson, I think because Dabo Sweeney, he he wore a, a, a T-shirt that was on its face and the way it was originally produced was harmless. Football matters. It's kind of a slogan that the National Football Foundation has used before. But in light of all that has happened in the Black Lives Matter movement, Wearing that T-shirt in public and having your photo taken with it was tone deaf. I don't ascribe any kind of racism to Dabo Sweeney, nor do his players. But some of his players weren't happy about it, and they voiced that to him. And they, too, have, have met and come to resolution and then had a very peaceful demonstration on campus a couple of weekends ago, and you know, you, you mentioned the the power of athletes. You know, the players at UCLA were very firm in saying they want third party medical officials on hand for all of their voluntary workouts, rather than just the medical staff from the university. Um, the, the the players do have power and they are clearly not shy about wielding it. Now, I think you make a great point with the Clemson story. When you think about the players reaction, there wasn't at least not publicly, there wasn't a sense of we have a problem with our coach. There was a sense of, we didn't like this. We thought this sent a bad message. We want to get on the same page. I think that's what we're seeing a little bit here is kids know who their coaches are, right? Kids Mm -hmm. know these guys on a level that, that even as media who cover them, we we don't get into with these guys, the way these players do. Um, And I think that's what you're seeing in a lot of places is kids revealing maybe how they feel about what they view as their coach's view of them, their relationship. Um, And look at UVA on the flip side of, of a positive model. I think when you think about Charles Snowden and how active he's been, um, with some of the protests in the D.C. area. When you think about Nick Jackson, a freshman linebacker, leading a, a march, leading an event in his hometown of Atlanta, and every time you hear from one of these kids, they don't they don't feel any sense of conflict with their coach. They feel nothing but support from their coaching staff. And I think that's something that's going to come out of this. The schools where that's true, where it's honest, where it's genuine, where the athletes really do feel supported by their coaches, I got to think they're going to get a big boost recruiting wise because families notice and athletes notice and coaches notice maybe who's selling something versus places where it's really genuine. And and I think, um, I think that has a chance to be a factor going forward in a way that maybe it never was before when we think about recruiting and things like that. Mike, I couldn't agree more. And, and here's a kind of an example I'll use. The business comparison to a head football coach 
has often been CEO. The big whistle, you picture him up literally in the tower during practice, shouting through a megaphone. He has his big office up in the building where maybe once or twice in your career, you'll have an audience. Most of the communication is done within the team and with assistant coaches. Mike, those days are over. (laughs) I I really believe that. I, I think head coaches are going to have to be involved on a far more grassroots level internally with their team. And I know there's 85 scholarship guys and also walk-ons. You're you're looking at three figures. That's hard. But guess what? Coaching is supposed to be hard. And you're going to need to be so much more aware and so much more empathetic of your athletes, their personal stories, and what's going on in their lives, and how they respond to the real world. If you are not, then I think you're at your own peril. I think that's a great point, and I think that it just reminded me, and it's it's a little bit out of left field, but I think about, I think you either have that empathy or you don't. You either have that connection or you don't, and one of the stories in the past year that struck me the most was at Virginia Tech with their football program, where they had an athlete who uh, essentially attempted suicide. And when he talked to me about his relationship with Coach Fuente and how there for him Coach Fuente was, it sort of peeled back the the curtain a little bit on, hey, some of these coaches, and, and, and Justin Fuente seems to be one of them, really have these relationships with the kids the way they did 50 years ago, right? Where the head coach he isn't just a CEO. He knows these kids inside out, and there is a, a passion and a commitment there. And I think that story to me was sort of heartwarming in the sense of it's good to hear a kid say that he feels that love from his football coach. And I think you're right that going forward, a lot more people are going to be looking for that than they are for a spread offense or up-tempo or what kind of a defensive front you play. I, I think that's the way it used to be. I think we got away from it, and I think it's the direction we're pointed back. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a great example you make of Justin Fuente and and the young offensive lineman at Virginia Tech. Which brings us to another Virginia Tech story, and a little bit lighter, (laughs) a little bit less of the the headlines and the news of, of the times. Let's talk a little basketball, and let's talk about Mike Young, and let's talk about Virginia Tech sizing up. <laughs> they're going big. They're, they're adding on a little more beef to that front court, which has been such an issue, really, even during the success of the Buzz Williams years. It was one of the smaller teams in the ACC. They've now added a transfer forward from Delaware, Justin Mutt. They've added Cordell Pemsel from Iowa. Keve Aluma, who sat out last season, had been with Mike Young at Wofford. I don't know that it's going to be a change in style of basketball, but you need some size. You need some height to compete in the ACC. And David, it, it looks like they're adding that. They absolutely are. I mean, all I have to do is look, look at the roster. I mean, last season Virginia in Virginia Tech's normal nine-man rotation, there were two guys who were six, seven or taller and both were freshmen. And now they have, the Hokies have since added three players who are Division I transfers. 
to that mix. Now, Aluma was practicing with the team last year, but unable to to play in games. But with Mutt and Pemsel, uh, there's there's two more guys who are six, seven, or taller. So next year, you could conceivably have five players, six, seven, or taller, in the rotation four of whom have major college basketball experience. That is a striking contrast to last season. And I think it'll help Tech rebound better. I think it will help the offense just in terms of getting to the foul line more. Virginia Tech rarely got to the foul line compared to its ACC uh, rivals. So I I think it's going to really benefit Mike Young in year two. Yeah, I think something that the people – forget sometimes and, and sometimes it's because they want to forget <laughs> but if you have one of those small lineups that runs the floor and that's all well and good until you find somebody who's able to slow you down and get you in the half court and pound you with their size I'm thinking about like a Florida State I mean that's the way Florida State is built they're going to run you with their depth but when you slow down and get in that half court they're going to pound you with high height and size and Virginia Tech didn't have an answer if they couldn't get you up and down and shooting from the wing, they were going to be in trouble. And this at least gives them kind of that puncher's chance. Uh, maybe not for 40 minutes, but if you get into a stretch of the game where a team like Florida State is playing in the paint, you're going to have that puncher's chance now to compete. And I think you hit on another great point, David, that yes, these guys are bigger and they've got the height. And that's the main thing we're talking about right now, but they've played college basketball. Yeah. This was a young basketball team they had a year ago. Mike Young had the youngest roster in the ACC the, the, in terms of experience. These were a lot of kids who had not played a lot of games. And now you're going to get a bunch of guys in Mutt, in Pemsel, in Aluma, who have played college basketball. And no, maybe they haven't played it in the ACC. Um, two of them haven't played it at the Power 5 level. But they've played college games. They've been in that competition. They've been against power five competition. Uh, I think that's going to make a huge difference as well. Yeah. And they've played it well. Yeah. I mean, Pemsel was a serious factor at Iowa as, as a freshman, Justin Mutt was Delaware's leading rebounder and number three scorer last season. And Keve Aluma was was the number two rebounder on a thirty and five Wofford team two seasons ago. So you know th- th- these guys have have been around the block. Whereas last season, you know the only guys in the rotation six seven were, were Landers Nolly and um, John Ogiaco, who'd never played a minute of college basketball. Yeah, it's a difference in size. It's a difference in experience. I don't know that it's going to translate to a difference in style of play because Aluma was with Young at Wofford. I think it means that what Mike likes to do in terms of, you know, getting a good shot, taking a good number of perimeter shots of three point shots. I think it just gives them a better chance of maybe an offensive rebound of, of holding your ground there a little bit. So I don't think we're talking about a new style of play. I think we're talking about being able to do what they want to do just a little more effectively. Right. Yes, and when unable to get up and down the court or perhaps get an open three, maybe have the option of getting a back-to-the-basket, low-post bucket, which rarely 
happened last season. Yeah, honestly, it has rarely happened in a number of years. I mean, I think <laughs> about uh, maybe Sedarian Reigns as the last, I mean, real player. I mean, Kerry Blackshear was such a, a Euro forward. He could do so many things. That's that's mm-hmm. a compliment to Kerry. But in terms of just, yeah, a guy you want to throw the ball to on the low block, that just hasn't been a part of Virginia Tech basketball. And and to be fair, it's, it's less and less a thing all across yes. college basketball. But it does seem that the programs that are successful have one or two guys who can at least play down there at a high level. Um, you know, we've seen programs that sort of throw a, a seven foot stiff out there who can't do much, but mm-hmm. you get a guy who's six, nine, six, ten and can at least compete and, and be a, a factor. It makes a big difference. And it's been a while since tech has had that. Yeah. And maybe get the opposing big in foul trouble. Yeah. Which can of course make a huge difference on, on both ends of the floor. And that brings us now to who you got. Thank you, Mike. Let's stick with uh, Tech Hoops for a minute. Who you got of the three new front court faces for the Hokies? Who will have the biggest impact this season? David. I'm going to go with with Justin Mutt, guys, the the transfer from Delaware, the most recent addition to the roster for one reason. He played the most basketball last season, whereas Keve Aluma uh, sat out. And Pemsel didn't play a lot at, at Iowa. Uh, Mutt was a was a starter for the Blue Hens, and as as we mentioned, averaged twelve points and, and eight rebounds a game. I, I think that's a young man who will contribute early and often. Yeah, I, I think this is a trio of additions that have a chance to play real well and and, and have an impact. But I'm going to go with Kevi Aluma in part because he's been with Mike Young. He knows this system. Mm-hmm. He's got nothing to adjust to. Uh, he sat out the year. He got stronger. He worked on his conditioning, but he's not adjusting to a new system. And this wasn't a, a bench warmer at Wofford. This is a guy who started 34 of, of 35 games his last year playing. He was playing 26, 27 minutes a game. He was averaging just under seven points, just under seven rebounds a game. Uh, you know, he, he's played in what, 67 games in, in his time there. So this is a kid who's tested, but this is a kid who isn't going to have to adjust X's and O's wise. I think Keve Aluma would have had a huge impact if he could have played this past season. And I think he will uh, have the largest impact as they get going, assuming they get going with this basketball season. It's going to be a really fun trio to watch. I think they all have a chance uh, to play a role, but for me right now, my who you got is Keve Aluma. Well, and Mike, you'll remember the the, the call we had with, with Mike Young during the offseason. I believe his quote about Keve Aluma was, I love his game. That's that's what you want to hear from a coach, right? I mean, it's, yeah. and, and it goes to my point. He loves his game, not just as a basketball player, but as a fit for what he does. And I just think there's a real opportunity there for Virginia Tech to, to have a player that um, – really fits and can contribute what was maybe missing in some ways this past season. Well, David, I want to hit a couple more things before we're done here today. And one of them is an upcoming documentary. I believe it's an ESPN documentary looking at the tournament that, that wasn't the the ACC tournament that uh, we all went to and got settled in and started to cover. and, And then it was gone as quick as it started. David, you were, you were interviewed for that documentary. So tell us what to expect. What are we, uh, what are we going to see? Well, I, I just know what I was asked about, <laughs> Mike, but I, I, I know that this is a strictly in-house production by the folks at the ACC, and it 
we're recording this Monday afternoon. It, it part one of four debuts tonight at nine o'clock and it's just airing on the ACC social channels, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. It's not going to be on the, on the ACC network or on ESPN or anything. And it's just a four part look at how all this happened. And uh, it was a, a fascinating few days and there's a lot of politics involved and a lot of politicians and a lot of NCAA. But I know the ACC's cameras were everywhere following Commissioner John Swafford and his staff and in the locker rooms with, with teams uh, as, as they learned of the tournament's cancellation or as they even competed after we learned that the NBA had shut down on that Wednesday night. As, as you well remember, it was a wild, wild few days. It really was. And, and I think you and I both felt like we had this front row seat or, or maybe even were participants in, in a sense of uh, a little bit of sports history with the way things were unfolding. I'm curious, though, to see the stuff we didn't see, right? Yeah. Like you can only put your eyes on what's in front of you. So we were here on the court when this happened, or we were here in the media room when this happened, or we were in a press conference when this was announced. But there was a lot of things happening simultaneously. <laughs> there were a lot of moving parts, and you couldn't have your eyes on everything. So I'm, I'm very curious to see what they captured and what they're able to share that was uh, – maybe not there for, for my eyes, or at least not the room I happen to be in at any given moment. I'm, I'm looking forward to checking that out. And along that same line, you wrote uh, during my furlough, I saw a piece and I read a piece of yours uh, about the ACC network and, and what they've done create, creatively to kind of fill the sports void and, and have some programming. Why don't you tell us a little bit about just the ACC network's efforts and, and how you think they've done? You know, Mike, I think they've done pretty well. I, I went and, and, and calculated the ACC network from the time the sports world shut down on March 12th through May 23rd, which would have been the last live event that the network carried, which would have been from the ACC baseball tournament. The network lost 130 games. Mm. That's more than 350 hours conservatively of programming. That's more than two solid weeks of 24-7 programming. I mean, I can't imagine what, you know, the hoops they've, they've had to jump through. So I was able to talk to the network's primary programmer. That would be Stacey McCollum and the network's coordinating producer, Aaron Katzman. And they just kind of peeled back the curtain a little bit on what they've been able to do how they riffed off current events, say the Jordan documentary on ESPN and saw how popular that had become. So, Hey, let's dedicate a day to Jordan. And they went in uh, cooperation with Raycom, which had done many of the games that Jordan played when he was at North Carolina. They were able to get the rights to those games. So they did 10 hours of Jordan games and then they produced all remotely without going to the studio on laptops and all via zoom produced a one hour special on Jordan's career at North Carolina with interviews with Roy Williams. And the best to my mind was with Billy Packer 
uh, Mark Packer's son, Mark Packer, who co-hosts the, the morning show with, with West Durham. And Billy was great sharing his memories. It was, it was cool just to see him back on camera. Those of us who kind of grew up watching games mm-hmm. that, that he broadcast. So I think that's one example. And what they essentially also did, Mike, was they moved the summer programming plan forward a few weeks, you know, with school takeovers, you know, a day devoted to Virginia Tech's big moments or UVA's or Florida State's and, you know, different epic games from from their histories. So I, I think the network has done pretty well just this past weekend. They they did similar treatment to, to Vince Carter, who just closed the longest career in NBA history at 22 seasons. So the network went back and, and aired some of his games from Carolina and just, you know, the crazy acrobatic dunks uh, <laughs> that, that, that he came up with. Well, speaking of uh... – ACC Network. I'm still hoping that Comcast gets something worked out so I can yeah. check out some of the programming to which you refer uh, yeah. as a Comcast. You're going to be customer. you're going to be waiting a while, I suspect. Yeah, it it seems like it, and um, very frustrating. But it's good to hear that what I'm missing has been good stuff <laughs> and quality programming. And uh, you mentioned Virginia Tech, and one more thing on Virginia Tech here, their Texas to VT movement recruiting football wise, that maybe has fallen a little flat this time through. They had two big commitments. Uh, both of them have since decommitted. So we, we're seeing maybe, um, I don't want to say a waste of effort, but uh, certainly not a return on the investment there in recruiting Texas. But they did bounce back and get a, a quarterback uh, commitment to kind of take the place of Demetrius Thomas. They got Taj Bullock, a, a three-star prospect out of my home state of New Jersey. David, that's uh, you, you got to have a quarterback in each class at this point, don't you? Yeah, I, th- I think you do, Mike, especially given how prevalent the transfer portal has become for all athletes, but especially quarterbacks. I mean, they you can almost bank on some guy leaving your program over the course of a year or two. And Virginia Tech has seen it, as have scores of other programs. But Bullock is big. He is 6'4". He's over 220. He's only started one season, but that one season ended with a state championship in a very competitive class in, in New Jersey. He led four fourth-quarter comebacks. Um, he chose the Hokies over UCLA, which is coached by Chip Kelly, and over your alma mater, Rutgers, which is coached by Greg Schiano. They're you know, two former NFL guys who have a pretty good track record with college quarterbacks. So um, we'll, we'll see how, how Bullock pans out, but – uh, I think he's a pretty intriguing prospect. Well, I'll, I'll try not to hold it against him that he spurned my alma mater to, <laughs> to play for the Hokies, and I'll uh, I'll at least get to see him play a lot more uh, in Southwest Virginia than I would have had he gone uh, to Central New Jersey. Well, 
that's our show for this week. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to Teal and Barber on Apple Podcasts by finding the RTD Podcast channel. And please consider supporting local journalism with an online subscription to the Times-Dispatch. If you've been following online, you know the tremendous work that our news department and, and honestly many of our sports reporters have done kind of picking up and getting involved in protest coverage. Uh, I think it's worth it. And if you have the ability, certainly your support would be much appreciated. You can find special promotional offers, including a sports-only option uh, at the website, richmond.com. Today's show was produced by Dean Hoffmeyer. Teal and Barber is a podcast of the Richmond Times-Dispatch and richmond.com. For David Teal, I'm Mike Barber. Thanks for listening. Be healthy and safe. And please join David and I again in two weeks. Two weeks.